I remain, as always, your humble host, Osgood. You caught me reorganizing my collection of glass eyes for the grand reopening of the medical oddity and morbid anatomy wing. There was a time when such collections were a rather popular hobby. For approximately four months in early 1924, but then it was swiftly overshadowed by the uncanny popularity of Al Juleson. I, however, continued to practice this lost art. This time I have arranged them by color, like a rainbow, red at one end and at the far end violet. Other times I arrange them by size and sometimes by odor. Some claim that this last one here belonged to Elizabeth Taylor. I don't believe that. One could hardly throw highball glass with as much accuracy as she and not have binocular vision. Over here on this wall is my collection of antique prosthetic limbs. That lady's model with the insert Derringer pistol is quite genuine, I assure you. That one in Wisconsin is the fake. Over here, and I'm quite proud of this one, if you'll pardon my hubris, is Kevin, my original editor here at the gallery. I've done a little work on him. You may want to stand behind the velvet rope there. He is still having a little trouble with his motor control on the new limbs. Just give it some time, Kevin. It'll, it'll work itself out, I suppose. Tonight's exhibit comes courtesy of Mr. William Burton McCormick, a Nevada native and Hawthornden Castle Fellowship winner. He has lived 10 years in Ukraine and visited Odessa, the setting of our story, numerous times. The story's protagonists, sisters Tasha and Eleni, debuted in the Derringer Award-nominated story, The Antiquary's Wife, in Alfred Hitchcock's Mystery Magazine. It will be read for us this evening by Miss Maria Rose. Kutsenko's Cage by William Burton McCormick Read by Maria Rose 1905, Odessa There were two remarkable things about Dr. Kutsenko. He was the most handsome man Taja ever knew, and he owned a cage. He and it arrived one sunny spring morning while Taja was down at the market shopping, her usual habit, as mother was away working in Yalta. When Taja returned to their family's lodging house past noon, she found her sister in a grand mood. We've a lodger, said Eleni, before Taja stepped two feet into the house. Arrived an hour after you left. A lodger? asked Taja as she set her basket on the parlor table. No more lodgers while mother's away. Remember what happened with the last one. He's a doctor and very charming. I've given him the second floor room. Eleni, we can't live unchaperoned with a man. The neighbors will think us a bordello. The neighbors are a bordello, Taja. Yes, but... And I'll wager even they don't pay four rubles a week. Four rubles a week? In advance. Eleni withdrew the coins from her skirt pocket and presented them to Taja. For a week, my word. Let me introduce you. 
Eleni gripped Taja's hand and pulled her up the narrow stairwell to the second floor landing. There, the door to the spare room stood open. Inside was a man of no more than 35, well-dressed in a felt suit and sparkling black shoes. He stood at the bedroom dresser, atop of which he had laid the tools of a doctor's trade on handkerchiefs. His head bent down as he organized the instruments. Taja could see a sun-bronzed face furled in concentration, a strip of white skin at the hairline, telling her he wore a hat outdoors. And when he turned those auburn eyes on her, Taja wondered how she'd ever objected to such a striking man's presence in their home. Dr. Kutsenko, said Eleni, please meet my sister, Anastasia. Call me Taja, doctor. Very glad to make your acquaintance. He bowed slightly. Two such hospitable young ladies as landlords, how could I help but be pleased? Dr. Kutsenko has just returned from quite a journey, Taja, said Eleni. Oh, yes, six months on the subcontinent, he said zestfully. I was telling a few yarns in your parlor earlier, wasn't I, Eleni? Well, none I can't repeat to you, Taja, should we find the time. Taja found that she liked this educated, active, and extremely good-looking man. She stepped from the shadows of the landing into the full light of the bedroom. And Dr. Kutsenko frowned. Are you twins? Eleni, you never mentioned. Yes, said Taja, feeling sheepish. We are. But not identical. Eleni is a little taller, and your faces aren't quite the same, though both pretty, I should say. Who's is prettiest? asked Eleni with an overbroad smile. Impossible to judge. It's like choosing between Venus with a mirror and Meltzi's flora in the Hermitage. As soon as you pick one, the other calls your heart. Doctor, do you always flirt so with twenty-year-old landladies? You misunderstand me, Anastasia. My interest is purely academic. He shook his finger as if to pretend to scold her. Twins, you see, fascinate me scientifically. Identicals are best, of course, for long-term biological study. But fraternals have their value, too. He pressed his fingertips together below his chin. My eyes show me that you are similar. Now, if you will humor me, let your voices say how you are different. The sisters stood in thoughtful silence for several moments to this strange questioning, before Eleni, with a shrug, said, Taja can't cook. And Eleni won't cook, laughed Taja. She's lazy. I'll cook for polite people. I'll cook for him. Ladies, Dr. Kutsenko said with a chuckle, you show me your differences are far more than cooking. Eleni left, and Taja was about to join in when the edge of her eye caught motion somewhere in or around a trunk near the window. Taja blinked, unsure what she had seen. Nothing moved again, if it ever had. It was quite an odd trunk, really, large and perfectly cubical. A sail-like cloth was pulled tightly over its form. And was that the impression of bars beneath? Dr. Kutsenko, please pardon me for asking, but what is that? That structure underneath the tarp? A cage? Yes, my specimen cage, he said without emotion. Besides being a medical doctor and surgeon, I take interest in biological diversity in all its myriad forms. I regularly contribute to zoos and university collections throughout Europe. He sat back against the dresser, his hip disrupting the neatly aligned scalpels. On this journey, though, I failed to gather anything of interest. The cage lies empty. He seemed to steel himself against the disappointment. Much to the dismay of my backers, I should say. Still, tut-tut. There are other ways to make money, aren't there? I thought I saw movement inside. The bedroom window is open, and the breeze simply ruffles the cover. Oh. 
I helped him carry it in here, whispered Eleni. It's too light, I think, to be anything but empty. Taja nodded. After a pause, Dr. Kutsenko said, Well, I really should return to my unpacking. As you raise the subject of cooking, Eleni, I'll remind you to please serve my dinners before four o'clock. Any later, and I have the most ghastly nightmares. A temperamental condition I've been cursed with since a child. Anything you wish, doctor. And I'll mention to you, Taja, in case your sister hasn't, that I intend to resume my medical practice now that I've returned to Odessa. As a surgeon, I may have callers at ungodly hours. I hope the sum I'm paying for this room offsets the inconvenience of a few bleary eyes. Can I depend on you and your sister to lend me some small assistance when needed? Of course, Dr. Kutsenko, said Taja. We would find it most interesting. Wonderful. We're all going to be great friends. As they left the bedroom for the landing, he muttered, Twins. Such possibilities. A step down the stairs, Eleni whispered, Did you hear him, Taja? He said we had possibilities. Possibilities for biological study. Marriage is a form of biological study, isn't it? You've been reading those ladies' journals at the English club, Eleni. Though Taja couldn't help but wonder who the doctor might prefer. He does seem very nice. But what do you think about the cage? Are you sure it's empty? Not absolutely certain, of course. That cloth covers all of it, and it's fastened tight as a drum at the base. But even so large, it was a feather when we carried it. It had to be empty. My mistake, I suppose. They descended the last steps into the parlor. Taja went to her market basket on the table and withdrew the newspaper she'd bought. The war with Japan dominated the front page, but when she turned to the second, Taja saw inside the headline, Rose Thief Strikes Again. Another robbery, she muttered. Where was this one? asked Delaney, coming up behind to read over her shoulder. Taja read aloud, A trio of Repin masterwork paintings were stolen Saturday night from the Vorontsov Palace. Three playing cards left in their places. Police believe the thief may be a foreigner, as the cards, which substitute the suit of diamonds with roses, are of Ottoman origin. Foreigner? scoffed Taja. Anyone can buy those cards at the Pritzov Bazaar for a kopeka pack. And they're Persian, not Ottoman. That article slander, it doesn't mention anything about the charitable things the rose has done leaving bundles of money, and those cards again, old news here, at orphanages, churches, hospitals. A pittance compared to what he's stolen, Eleni. He gives to those who need it, like that famous English thief. Something hood, wasn't it? Tasha tried to recall what she'd read in the London papers from the English club. Hook, I think it was. That's it! Eleni snapped her fingers. Hook, Captain Hook. Yes, said Taja, flipping the newspaper page. Well, let's hope your Captain Hook leaves a little money around here. We could use some good luck. Some time passed four in the morning, and exhausted Taja opened their front door. A man outside in a hooded cape stepped forward. The cow pulled so low she could only see his thin lips and stubbly chin. With a metallic scent in his breath, he said, Is Dr. Dikoplovenko here? Dikoplovenko, repeated Eleni, standing behind Taja, a kitchen knife hidden in her robes. Who's he? We've a doctor, Kutsenko, said Taja firmly. Is that who you want? That'll do. The man lurched hard against the door, knocking Taja from the threshold and forcing himself into the house. Both women shouted, and Eleni readied the knife, yet the effort of barging inside sapped this stranger of his strength. He toppled forward, Taja barely able to catch him before he hit the floor. 
Laney, she said, straining to keep the big man up. Help me. Eleni pocketed her knife and slipped an arm under his shoulder. They both shouted for the doctor. He was already on the stairwell. Take him up to my room. He's bleeding, said Eleni. She was right. Red droplets were falling from inside the hood, some landing on Taja's bare feet as they hauled him across the parlor. Dr. Kosenko joined them at the stairs, hoisting the man up, half across his shoulders as they climbed the steps. Eleni had an arm and Taja a leg, but it was like carrying nothing. The doctor ably shouldered the load alone. When they reached Kutsenko's room, they set the wounded man down on the bed, propped his head upon a stack of pillows. The doctor pushed back the hood. Eleni, not at all squeamish, let out a breath. The remnant of a wine bottle protruded from his opened skull. The cylindrical shard lodged just above the cheekbone and encompassing all the right eye socket. Dried blood covered his face and neck, new crimson seeping over the pillows. Doctor, said the man, his one visible eye cloudy and distant. I... Otter Kusenko, replied their tenant. I can't pull it out. Something's hooked in there, Doc. The doctor patted the man on the shoulder, then moved to the dresser to select his instruments. He silently shuffled through them for a moment, lifting a wiry hook and something resembling rose prunes, before he glanced at the girls. Lainey, Taja, please close the door on your way out. This is no scene for young ladies. You saved his life. I can't say that for certain, Taja. Only that procedure went better than expected. How could a man in such dire condition walk out of here so alert and seemingly in good spirits a day or so later? Standing in Dr. Kutsenko's airy morning bedroom, Taja folded up the stained sheets on which the patient had lain for two days before leaving. Doctor, you are a miracle worker. Hardly. What I did most competent surgeons could have done if they applied themselves. His voice turned to gruff. It's only that they won't. She looked at him curiously, folded the last sheet. You see, Taja, this 20th century we've entered has no limitations, scientific or otherwise. Daring medical practitioners... Those outside the conservative schools of the establishment can mend tissues. Pure ills are forebearers never dreamed possible. We are not far, I think, from keeping the Reaper at bay forever. A worthy man, if properly maintained by his lessers, may live indefinitely. Are you open-minded, Tasha? I think so. Let us see. He began to unbutton his shirt. Dr. Kutsenko! He laughed. Nothing of that sort, Taja. Observe. Turning away from her, he pulled out the tails of his shirt, then hoisted it up to his shoulders. In the center of his back, on either side of his spine, were two thick oval scars. I live on the kidneys of another man. Two, in fact. She'd never heard of such things. Is that possible? If it weren't, I wouldn't be standing before you now. He let the shirt down, turned back to her. A surgeon living along a remote tributary of the Ganges performed the first operation. The second was in Peking by a soon-to-be-murdered physician loyal to Prince King. Great men, great methods chased into the shadows even in their own nations, by centuries of imperialism. I learned the methods from my benefactors. Now I would return the favor to those in need. It seemed something out of Verne or Wells. Are there any drawbacks? Only moral, but if it saves lives... Then it's worth it. Yes, we are similar, aren't we, Tarja? You can inform Eleni, if you wish, 
but please keep this conversation within the household. The clothes minded, you see. I won't let men die, Tarja, waiting for some committee of medical bureaucrats to say what I do is permissible. I'd rather take the risk than lose the great man. So brave. You're not a criminal, Dr. Kutsenko. You're an angel. Well, some might say. But angels have wings on their backs, not scars. He tucked in his shirt tails. Anyway, it's well past time you called me Arthur. Arthur. And it's you, Daja, who may yet see the angels. Angels in the architecture, along Yekaterininskaya Street, that is. I invite you for a city center stroll and fine dining tomorrow night. Unencumbered by your sister, of course. This surprised Taja, nervous butterflies fluttering about her stomach. I think such, such meetings with our male lodgers are against the rules, Arthur. Oh, you are certain then? His disappointment was palpable, more than a hint of offense in his tone. Taja felt a silly girl. She was twenty, after all without any serious suitors. What had he said? I'd rather take the risk than lose the great man. Stop being such a prude, Tarja. Of course, as you say, Arthur, rules are made to be broken. Mother might never know. Tarja flipped another page in Tess of the D'Urbervilles. Where have you been all night? Eleni tossed her umbrella in the door basket, stripped off her raincoat. The medical college library. To nearly ten o'clock. I've been checking surgeons' registries. She hung the coat on the wall peg. There's no listing for a Dr. Kutsenko in Odessa or the whole oblast. He never claimed to be a registered surgeon. Eleni pushed over a footstool, then sat down on the divan next to Taja. But there was a listing for a Dr. Itza Alexandrovich Dikoplovenko, practicing surgeon in three consecutive volumes, until he was expelled by the Medical Council in December 1900. Why? The registry didn't say. Taja shut her book. Arthur's a good tenant, Delaney. Why are you suddenly so skeptical of him? You saw him save that man with a bottle through his eye. I did. A man who called him Dikoplovenko. A man with a head injury. He might have called Arthur anything in such a state. Including his actual name. I don't trust a doctor living under an alias. How many tragedies have we suffered because of lodgers with false identities? Are you sure, Eleni, this change of heart regarding Arthur isn't merely jealousy? A bit of envy because a handsome surgeon asked me to dinner tomorrow night instead of you. You know that's not true. I wonder. One of our tenants has shown interest in me for once, and now you... It was more a bleating than a scream like the cries of some dying animal echoing up from the Feliski slaughter yards. In an instant, both sisters were sprinting up the stairs to the second floor. The cries came from their tenant's room. Dr. Kutsenko, shouted Eleni, pounding on the door. What is happening in there? There was a rustle inside, then something like the clinking of metal on glass. The metallic sound repeated, and the screams, whatever they were, subsided. Heavy footsteps followed. Then Dr. Kusenko tore open the door. He stood in his robe, hair disheveled, face night-swollen. Arthur, said Taja, is everything all right? Nightmares, he half-screamed. Eleni, why did you tempt me with the chocolate mousse past six? You know I can't have food at night. You ate it well enough. Well, 
I'm sorry for the screams. It was a manifold vision even Goya could not slumber through. I should think that I shall not disturb you any more tonight, though. I've taken a sedative. He began to shut the door. Isa Alexandrovich, shouted Eleni. He paused. Why do you call me Isa? To see what you would do. There came a knocking from downstairs. The front door, said Taja, at nearly ten? Another emergency, perhaps, said the doctor wearily. He locked his own door, and the three of them descended the stairs together. When Taja opened the front door, the same man in the hooded cape was on their step, his eyes clear and stern. Taja noticed for the first time he had heterochromia, one iris blue, the other, the one in the socket where the bottle had been and now encircled by a ring of Dr. Kudzenko's stitches, was dark brown. Doctor, he said, your assistance is required. The doctor nodded, and it seemed to Taja that some unspoken communication passed between the two men. Their tenant returned to his room. In moments, he was back down the stairs, dressed in a tan waistcoat, medical kit in hand. I've disturbed you enough tonight. Please don't wait up, ladies. As if we would, Isa, said Eleni. Taja watched from the door as the pair climbed into a horse-drawn buggy and sped away into Odessa's night. It's nearly eight o'clock, Arthur, said Taja, looking through the menu at Elegant Fanconi's cafe in the city center. You'll eat too late. He laughed at this, glancing up from his own menu with those mesmerizing eyes. I'll risk a few nightmares for a scrumptious meal at last, Taja. Not that your sister's cooking isn't enjoyable, but... No apologies. No one eats Eleni's dishes. I've lost so much weight since mother's been gone. This dress hardly fits me. Well, I think you look elegant, he said, and his gaze lingered on her figure. Thank you. Taja felt herself blushing at the compliment and wondered if he could tell. To be out, free, and unchaperoned with a man like Arthur at Falcone's, the legendary Hanging Gardens restaurant, where the tycoons and nobility of the Russian Empire dined. Simple ethnic Greek girls of Taja's class never ate here. She probably couldn't even merit work at Falcone's as a dishwasher. And these prices... Arthur, our meal will cost three weeks' rent. With the war, food is so expensive, it is not fair to you. I have the means, Taja. Enjoy yourself. She nodded, yet his answer begged another question, one that perhaps should not be asked, but the wine in the park before dinner had made Taja brave and improper. If you've money's available, Arthur, then why do you stay at so simple a place as ours? Why not a fancy hotel or purchase a home? He frowned, a firmness in his response that made Taja regret her question. Isn't it evident my work demands a residency off the society path, at least until the medical boards decriminalize my methods. He took a long drink of his Merlot, and it seemed to Taja his hand gripped the wine glass very tightly. Every year I make overtures. Always I am rejected. Idiots, how many Russian elite will die in this conflict with Japan, whom I might have saved? If my techniques were applied, these brave officers would still breathe. Only officers. Surely all soldiers could benefit. Of course, of course. He drank more wine. The rogue deserve to keep what is born theirs. But the supply must come from somewhere, Tarja. The common soldier will lay down his life on the battlefield for his commander. Is it much different to make that same sacrifice in a hospital bed? We'd win this war if men like Admiral Witgeft had been given another spleen. 
Taja wondered if she was misunderstanding these rather curious words. These skills of yours, Arthur, do many others have them? No white man does. I can say that for certain. The Swiss and French, leaders here, can only stew in their juices with envy. Racists, jingoists, they failed to look east. The Chinese surgeon Bian Ke was performing organ replacement centuries before Christ's birth, as was the great Indian physician Sasaruta. The chaos of imperialism has pushed the knowledge to the corners of their societies. The hidden schools in Los Grottos and Himalayan valleys seldom trod by Europeans, but they can be found by an intrepid scholar-adventurer who dares, and I am one who has done so. When they told me my kidneys were failing, I sought legendary places. If I live by a transplant, others here can too. And Odessa is very glad you're alive, as am I. He did not smile. Well, Odessa will be, soon, that I guarantee you. If we... His words were interrupted by a looming presence within the restaurant. The head waiter led a tall, serious-looking police constable past them to a fine-tailored elderly gentleman alone at the next table. You are Baron Korkin, owner of the Osmanov warehouses, asked the waiter. What is it? replied the old man sternly, as if the waiter should know to whom he spoke. Why do you interrupt my soup? I'm sorry, sir, said the constable, stepping forward, a tremor in his voice despite his towering size. But there is a problem at your warehouse property. Our men have cornered the rose thief and his gang. We are breaking down the doors. At last, said the baron, we'll kill that rogue yet. Arm in arm, Taja and Arthur walked above the seaside along Nikolaevsky Boulevard, a perfectly paved street skirting the edge of the Odessan Plateau. The gilded roofs and wrought iron gates of palaces and mansions to their left, a viewing wall overlooking the harbor on the right, and far above the branches of the white acacias lining the roadside, floated oriental lanterns launched from one of Odessa's many great plazas ahead. They lit up the April night sky, a man-made constellation of glowing orange orbs flying over the city, slowly being carried away by the winds to cast their lights on the dark waters of the Black Sea. Taja had never seen a more beautiful night. Yet her escort possessed a different view. All these oriental lamps, said Arthur, looking high into the heavens, it is an ill omen for the struggle with Japan. We will lose this war. Taja patted his arm. They are Chinese lanterns, not Japanese. Take them as signs your work will be accepted. What a pleasant interpretation. You are a remarkable woman, Anastasia Karoduplina. Hardly. He kissed her a moment before she knew he would. Arthur, we are unchaperoned. This is what unchaperoned people do, Taja. Have you never been alone with a man? She pushed him away, gently, unsure if she wished to. People will see us. Maybe another kiss when we are home. Lene will be there. You can't hide behind your sister forever. Is she as chaste with her sweethearts as you? You and I mustn't be in the same house, Arthur. If you wish to court me, you might find other lodgings. I'll do so, Monday morning. It's best. They walked, silently holding hands for a few minutes, Taja unsure of her own intentions. He was handsome and a healer, but some of his recent words unsettled her. She'd ask Eleni. Jealousy aside... Her sister was always truthful. Blunt and tactless, but truthful. After several minutes, the Chinese lanterns fading to mere pinpoints over the sea, they passed into a plaza with the great neoclassical statue of Duke de Richelieu, 
and Odessa's famous boulevard staircase descending forever down to the harbor. At the top of these mighty steps, a portly police constable stood watch. Is it over? asked Arthur as they passed through the plaza. Did they catch the rose at last? The constable shook his head. Word is, he slipped away once again, sir. Curse him. Twenty men with that devil at bay, and still he escaped. We took a few of his men, though. You'll never finish him. Not with our best off at war, and oafs like you to mind the house. Well... Never mind the war, sir. We aren't so incompetent as you say. There was blood on the roadstones afterwards. Some of our bullets found their marks. It didn't drop the devil, but it may take the bloom off the old rose yet. I'll keep my wager on the great man. As you wish, sir. After they'd exited the plaza, leaving the offended constable far behind, Taja asked, you admire the rose thief, don't you, Arthur? I admire his willingness to go outside the wall for what is right, what is needed. His voice dropped to a whisper then, his words so low, Taja wondered if she was supposed to hear what was said next. And I understand his obsessions, God help me. When they returned home, they found the front door ajar and the lodging house empty. Eleni, shouted Taja, but there was no answer. It's unlike her to leave the premises unlocked, continued Taja, checking the back courtyard for her sister. My door is open as well, said Arthur, peering up the stairs to the landing above. Someone's been in my room. Eleni would never invade the tenant's privacy. The evidence would suggest otherwise, Taja he said tersely, and began to ascend the stairs when something stopped him. A man had appeared in the front door. Dr. Dikobovenko, shouted his visitor. Tasha half expected it would be the familiar hooded patient. Instead, this new caller was stockier, slightly older, dressed in a long black coat and red bowler hat. We need your help. Arthur stepped back, down to the parlor. What help? The man stared at Taja. Is the lady... She's with me, said the doctor. Speak freely. They shot the boss through the liver, Doc. He don't have long, lest you can do something. Can you come with me? I'll get my surgeon's tools. I'll need your help to take everything. It's none too heavy. I've only one left. The man in the bowler grunted an affirmative, and the two climbed the stairs to Arthur's room, Taja trailing behind. There followed a whirlwind of activity as the doctor collected his blades, saws, and medicine bottles from the drawers and dresser tops, only pausing when he remarked about missing a scalpel. "'Doc, we got no time,' said the other man. "'The boss is half in his grave as is.' With his satchel pinned beneath one arm, Arthur and his visitor lifted the cage from the floor, hefting it past Taja as they went from the bedroom to the landing. It seemed to her something moved within, an inkling, an irrational suspicion came to her. Then that somehow equated the motion inside with her missing sister. It made no sense, yet... Taja still found herself reaching out a hand to lift the tarp's edge. Arthur slapped it away. We've no time for that, Taja. A man is dying. What's in there, Arthur? Later. This resistance only increased her fears. They were halfway down the stairs. Arthur first, bearing most of the weight of the cage, when Taja gritted her teeth and grabbed at the covering again. The man in the bowler struck her hard in the jaw with his elbow. Taja lost her balance, slid down the few remaining steps to the parlor's floor, more stunned than injured. The men sped by her, carrying the cage through the room and out the front door. I'm sorry, Taja. That was uncalled for, said Arthur as they stepped into the street. He'll live to regret that, I assure you as a gentleman. 
Through the open doorway, she could see them slide the cage into the back of a black horse-drawn van. The two men shut the rear door, then went around to climb into the seats at front. Her wits returning, Taja rushed to her feet, reached the doorway. The van was just pulling out into the night. I'll explain everything, Taja, soon, shouted Arthur from the passenger seat. You'll forgive me, I know. If you're a woman worthy of love, then you'll forgive. But now a brave man is at risk. As the van distanced itself, that cage moved again, independent of the shuddering of the carriage over the street stones. She knew then, knew whom the cage contained. Eleni! Taja sprung from the front step and sprinted after the van. Eleni! I'm here, came a shout behind. Taja turned around to see her sister and three police constables running up the street towards her. The sisters embraced, Taja whispering, Thank God, thank God. Where is Dr. Kutsenko? Where is that cage, Taja? She pointed up the road. Is the cage empty? No. A moment later, the constables were lost in the gloom of night, last seen in a vain pursuit of the van. The sisters returned to their home. Under the lamplight of the parlor, Taja could see Eleni looked impossibly tired, lines in her forehead, shadows beneath her eyes. She appeared ten years older than she had this afternoon. Though her own jaw stung and was quickly swelling, Taja felt the need to comfort her sister, but Eleni wanted nothing. No tea, no food, no blanket, only to sit on that parlor chair, head in hands, and recover her strength. Tell me what happened, Taja finally said softly. Don't you know? How could I? Eleni lifted her face, eyes red and puffy. Then you didn't see. You haven't seen. I've seen nothing. Tapping some new well of strength, Eleni moved her chair closer, leaning a shoulder against Taja, as if she needed physical support to tell of her tale. Finally, she told her story in the hoarse, cracking voice of a much older woman. I had been alone some hours this evening when I heard those familiar cries coming from our tenant's room. The long, shrill, bleating sounds he says he makes in his sleep when the nightmares come. But Dr. Kutsenko was away, out courting you, Taja. Who or what then was up there? I listened to those shrill screeches for only a few seconds before I seized the spare key from the cabinet and with lighted candlestick in hand, climbed the steps to the landing before the doctor's room. Only then did I pause, Taja. The noise was horrifying, like a despondent creature awaiting the fall of a butcher's axe. It took all my will to slip the key into the lock and turn the bolt. As I opened the door, the cries went silent. Whatever made those noises was aware of me, knew I was inside the room with it. After those incessant shrieks, the quiet itself somehow became frightening. At first glance, the bedroom appeared undisturbed, exactly as it had been when Dr. Kudzenko was present. I used the candlestick to light the chamber lamps. The doctor's wardrobe was open, few clothes hung inside, and I could see that nothing of any size dwelt there. Of course, my attention went to that covered cage by the window. As I grew closer and the boards creaked beneath my feet, an impression appeared underneath the tarp as if a hand, or perhaps a face, were pressed against the fabric trying to peer through. It quickly faded. I stared for several moments, but the face, if it had been a face, did not return. Still, I pulled one of Dr. Kutsenko's scalpels from the top of his dresser and kept it ready as I approached the cage. Gripping the pen's corner at full arm's length, I shook it slightly, then harder. Nothing moved underneath, though it seemed weighted down, heavier than when I'd helped the doctor carry it in a week ago. 
Taja brushed her sister's hair with her fingers, feeling the perspiration, the warmth of great emotion on her skin. I observed him carrying the cage tonight, Delaney. Arthur has a way of bearing all the weight. It might seem light to you no matter the contents. Could be, could be, Taja. All I knew at that moment alone up there was that the cage was too heavy now to be empty. Keeping the scalpel ready, I hiked up the end of the tarp nearest me. What I saw inside drove waves of revulsion through me. Sick, primal emotions sent me scampering back a few steps. They didn't last, Taja. Thank God. As I recovered, a terrible pity took my soul. It was a boy inside, maybe fifteen or sixteen, emaciated, wearing only a loincloth. I couldn't tell his race or ethnicity. I could see little of his features, for he was huddled at the other end of the pen back to me. His face in profile, peering over his own shoulder, I could see but one terribly pained, intelligent, dark eye staring back at me. Oh, the poor creature. On the boy's back ran a thin, oval scar, outlining where his left kidney must be, or must have been. His better skin, too, was pockmarked by countless needle scars. He must have spent this last week, or much longer, drugged into delirium. The boy was the saddest sight I've ever seen, and there were signs, Taja, hints that the cage's population wasn't always so sparse, that perhaps two or even three souls might have occupied it recently. I didn't attempt to communicate with the prisoner. I wasn't thinking then. I knew only that I wished to free him. I quickly found a set of keys in the drawer of the wardrobe, trying the members until I discovered one that fit. I opened the padlock, pushed the tarp higher, and pulled open that door. The captive stirred at the motion, turning towards me, tentatively at first, but faster as he gained resolve. As he did so, more of his form became visible. His chest and stomach were covered in these damnable uniform, deliberate scars. Scars made not by some terrible accident, but by the precision of a surgeon's knife. He had the prominent mark at his throat, but the most gruesome lay at the face. His other eye, the one initially hidden by his posture, was missing. Instead, the eyelid over the socket was pulled tight and flat, a fresh suture along the upper cheek holding it in place forever. No bulge of any eyeball remained beneath. It had been removed, Taja. All these horrors I grasped for but a moment. The boy crawled forward to the opening, faced nearly in mine, and tried to speak, but only the hideous bleat erupted from his lips. It was no foreign language. Something had been taken, his speech stolen from him. I lost my composure then, Taja. I dropped the scalpel. It fell beside the cage, but I failed to retrieve it. Instead, I tugged down the tarp, blocked the sight of him, fled out the room and down the stairs as those blaring, bleating cries erupted from behind. It was a cowardly act, I admit. By the time I reached the parlor, I'd regained some of my senses. That creature, that poor boy out of a Mary Shelley nightmare, was not the monster. He was a victim. Dr. Kutsenko was the true monster. And then I thought of you. That devil Kutsenko was somewhere in this city with my sister. I panicked then. I didn't know what he might do to you out there, Taja. He might have a dozen flats, a dozen cages... I fled the house searching for a policeman. When I returned, you were here, and I'm grateful to Mary Jesus and Saint Simeon that you are. But that tragic child, why would he cut him up like that? He's a harvest man, Eleni. But if I told you what that fiend was harvesting, you'd never believe me. 
The possibilities and the horrors of the 20th century are endless. She looked at me, and she knew. The police found the van less than an hour later. It was off on a side street near Franciski Boulevard, the horses standing calm, the carriage quiet, the rear door ajar. The driver, his red bowler floating in a pool of crimson on the floor, had fallen into the leads when he died, pulling the reins tight and slowing the obedient stallions to a standstill. His throat, like Dr. Kutsenko's next to him, had been slit from behind by a precise instrument well-suited for the task. The police suspected the weapon was one of the surgeon's own scalpels. In a van, a cage was found empty with the door open, the remnants of a shredded tarp nearby inside. The murderer of Dr. Kutsenko and his associate has never been found. Our narrator, Maria Rose, is a graphic designer, a writer, astrologer, a classicist. Sometimes such a nine, mostly eccentric. You know, it's rather a shame that glass eye collecting has gone out of fashion. In another decade or less, what with modern printing technology, this sort of artistry will become a lost art. Pity. But the hour grows late. You should be on your way. Do take care to avoid any strangers bearing cages on your way home. I would miss your company next time at the Gallery of Curiosities. Gallery of Curiosities is produced under a Creative Commons International 4.0 non-commercial attribution, no derivatives license. If you like our stories, tell your friends, and if you don't, well, go do something else already, would you? Our theme song is Ashes Ashes by Deus Ex Vapora Machina. This episode was produced in September of 2018. For full show notes, visit us on the web at gallerycurious.com. Kevin, if you don't want to say hello to our guests, perhaps you would at least have the manners to give them a friendly wave. Well, who am I kidding? As if anyone at home can see the wave over the radio. Not the devil was I thinking. What do you say? We close up shop and go out for some martinis, Kevin. Let's get our hats, shall we? If we leave right now, we just might make it in time for happy hours.